0: One thing you can count on in these uncertain times is the Registry's grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate. We are able to deliver the reliable and in-depth news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at TheRegistrySF.com. Today, we are joined by Liz Hart and Mike Sein, representing the Newmark Knight-Frank's offices in San Francisco and San Jose. Liz specializes in working with tenants and landlords to meet their complex real estate needs in San Francisco. As the Vice Chairman, she began her career advising technology and venture clients and is now responsible for, among other things, working with landlords on redeveloping their buildings to attract technology tenants. Liz was one of the top five producers in Newmark Knight Frank's San Francisco office in 2007, and also from 2010 to 2017. She ranked among the top 20 producers in 2011 and top 10 producers from 2013 and 2017. Some of her clients include Uber Technologies, Stripe, Pinterest, Zendesk, BitTorrent, and Box. Mike is also a vice chairman with Newmark Knight Frank in uh, the company's San Jose office. A Silicon Valley native, Mike works with a diverse group of clients ranging from high growth startup ventures to global Fortune 500 corporations. Mike also advises a wide range of institutional owners and developers across Silicon Valley on their asset management and leasing strategies. He has consistently been one of Newmark Knight Frank's top-ranked advisors. In 2018 alone, he was involved in 2.5 million square feet of premier Class A office and R&D transactions. He has been named multiple times to Newmark's Chairman's Club, which recognizes the firm's top 100 producing agents in the United States. He has worked with Jay Paul in Sunnyvale on helping Lee's Facebook, Amazon, and LinkedIn, and Sobrado organization Santa Clara Lease to ServiceNow, as well as Invesco's Sunnyvale Lease to Alibaba, among many others. We welcome Mike and Liz. Hi Liz, hi Mike, how are you guys doing?
1: We're doing, doing well, great. thank you. Thanks
2: for having us, Vlad.
0: Absolutely, are you both uh, sheltering in, uh, in place? How's that going?
1: We are. And, you know, it's it's been interesting trying to create as much of a, a regular schedule as you can in this very new, new environment and new circumstances that we're all dealing with, but doing well and all healthy, which is um, the most important thing right now.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Um, so uh, uh, both of you are um, commercial real estate brokers in the in the Bay Area. Liz, your focus is uh, primarily in San Francisco. Um, uh, Mike, you're primarily in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Newmark Knight Frank sort of throughout the region and kind of what your what your coverage is uh, within the industry.
2: Yeah, thanks, Vlad. Um, I am a vice chairman in our Silicon Valley office. Uh, Newmark has 11 offices across the Northern California region. Uh, I specialize in office and R and D leasing. Uh, I have two types of clients: one are uh, landlords, uh, be they local and institutional investors and developers that we advise on their leasing, asset management and development strategies. And then uh, we also work with a wide breadth of tenants, uh, technology, life science, professional service companies mainly. uh, And we help them not only with their real estate, strategic planning uh, and procurement locally, but uh, globally as well. So I think what'll be uh, fun to discuss on this call is uh, the dual perspective that we've been uh, approaching these last 45 days in this environment, both from a landlord and a tenant perspective.
0: And Liz, tell us a little bit about your background uh, with Newmark.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Mike and I actually started at Newmark at the same time in 2005. And we both have very similar roles, although mine is you know San Francisco and his is the Silicon Valley. And I think that's something that's really interesting is we've been able to see through this entire cycle, you know, how companies have really changed and how landlords are changing to meet the needs of those companies. And we're probably in an unprecedented time now of when that change is going to accelerate. So excited to talk about what we think we're seeing out there.
0: All right, great. So um, before we jump into kind of where things are now, let me just rewind back a few months where things looked very differently than they do today maybe you can give us um, a bit of sort of your perspective on how 2019 ended and based on that how you guys were perceiving 2020 to be you know back in like you know December of 2019 I'd love for both of you to give uh, that insight Liz
2: if you want to kick it off
1: Yeah, sure. So in December of last year, I mean, the San Francisco market, we had 3.2% vacancy, very unprecedented, more tenant demand than we'd ever seen before. And generally, an increasingly credit market as well, with our tenants having increasing credit profiles. Um, so, we were heading into 2020 feeling like it was going to be a, a very strong year in terms of, of leasing activity and continuance of the trends that we'd seen in the previous 37 quarters uh, during the recovery since the Great Recession. Now, uh, th- things are feeling a little bit different in March than they were then. Um, but in many ways, we still do think that there were some cracks and trends of things we were seeing in the end of last year that um, the current COVID crisis that we're facing have, have exacerbated?
2: Yeah, the, the perspective from Silicon Valley, when I think back at the end of the year, as it related to what we were uh, expecting to transpire in 2020, was a conservative one, given how late in the cycle we have been. But, you know, candidly, it was a kind of a confident, optimistic um, feeling about what we were going to see I think continue on in 2020 if we look back at the total deal flow of 2019 looking at all office and r and d transactions in terms of gross absorption um, it was actually 24 percent lower than 2018 which is a historical blockbuster year so certainly a uh, leveling off from the you know high velocity of the market had been trending, but if you looked at just the office leasing over a 10-year period, it was actually 22% higher than that average deal volume. So still plenty of transactions and still plenty of activity in the market. I mean, when I think about the end of last year, we had the headwinds of, you know, trade wars with China and the uncertainty of an election year looming, but we still had Silicon Valley's largest household names absolutely cranking We had a record level stock market. We have VC funds that are flush with cash, you know, less M&A work, which is not always a great thing for Silicon Valley and Bay Area real estate and, you know, more IPOs. And we're seeing, you know, some of these new industries of the Bay Area, like the auto tech industry and all the work being done in artificial intelligence flourishing. So, you know, from our vantage point, while it was a later in the stage cycle and we weren't going to continue to see the volumes that we had been for so many years, like in 2018 and preceding years, it still felt good. Um, You know, the the one topic that is kind of an interesting one that we thought about for many of the last years, but, you know, wellness was a really heightened goal of tenants and landlords in terms of creating a happier, healthier employee that, you know, is more productive and less likely to want to go elsewhere. And so it's kind of interesting to see the wellness of kind of 2019 versus the well we're talking about today in 2020 right. kind of having a complete uh, change and evolution. So, right. um,
0: that's, that's how that, that's how that looked. And one other thing that I think is, is relevant to mention, and I, I, I don't know where I saw this, but I think, you know, back in sort of the mid two thousands, I guess, when you guys were starting off and that's incidentally around the time when we launched our publication as well. Um, the tenant base was also somewhat different in terms of kind of who was leasing and taking space. Uh, would can can you guys comment like over the last decade sort of what that tenant profile has has changed or or how it has changed in both of your markets?
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely. no problem at all. I seen mean, so if you go back, I mean especially ten years in San Francisco, we weren't necessarily considered a, a tech market. We certainly had, you know, the beginnings of, of a tech community here in San Francisco. Uh, definitely a startup ecosystem that was in SOMA, but we didn't have um, the big tech the way that we do now. And so over the past ten years, you know, with Google, um, Facebook, you know, others kind of entering our market with very large leases. That's kind of been combined with San Francisco headquartered companies like Uber, Dropbox, Cruise. Um, that also have have very large footprints, so over the years ten year period and this last recovery, we have increasingly become a tech centric market. But interestingly, even with you know the greater exposure to tech, uh, if you look at our tenants in the market and who's out there actively looking for space, you know nearly fifty percent of it on a square footage basis is public um, and with very strong revenues. So it is interesting that even though it's become more of a tech market, which sometimes is perceived with credit risk, we also have had an increase in the credit profile of tenants that are looking for space in San Francisco.
2: Yeah, I I would uh, add to that, um, as it relates to Silicon Valley, that the diversity of industries today is incredible in terms of its breadth uh, in comparison to 15 years ago. Um, We are, you know far from ever being reliant on the semiconductor industry or the social networking industry, or, you know, some of these, um, you know, different companies that when you think of, you know, the stereotypes of Silicon Valley uh, that kind of come to mind, I mean, I think of, you know, the companies that I think are going to carry us through this um, choppy period and into better days from, you know, the streaming and content companies and Netflix and Roku's, you know, e-commerce, not just Amazon, but, you know, think Walmart.com and Instacart, you know, all the virtual communication tools that we're using, Zoom and Slack and, you know, Verizon's acquisition of BlueJeans Network, you know, there's gaming, you know, pharmaceuticals, health and diagnostics, you know, the data center companies, um, you know, the security software companies, alto Networks, FireEyes, E-Scaler, um, and fitness, you know, fitness is taking on a whole new sure life of its own in this. So I, I really... Um, you know, would echo what Liz says about credit. And my gosh, just look at Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google, and throw, you know, Microsoft in there for good measure. You know, those five companies alone are sitting on over $400 billion of cash. And that's just five companies. So, you know, the diversity of the companies and the industries that they serve on a global market, plus the, you know, war chest balance sheets, you know, really is a a fundamental difference that, at the end of the day, it gives me more confidence in the stability of this market through this rough period in the, you know, months and years ahead than I would say when I started my career.
0: Yeah, and and we're going to get into that in a minute, but I I, I think it is important to um um you know say that that you know technology is such a big part of uh, the you know the bigger Bay Area picture and it might be it's sort of saving grace going forward as well and we'll we'll get into that in one second um so um so let me kind of then rewind back to then march or you know february march of this year um so the shock kind of hits us all right um tell us a little bit about you know w- what are some of the kind of immediate sort of changes that 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 you know you've seen uh maybe some obvious ones but maybe some other less so that you know you can just anecdotally share with us?
1: Yeah. I, Go, ahead. Go ahead, Mike.
2: Sure. Um, I think first and foremost, you know, Liz and I just want to highlight on a call like this, how, you know, grateful we are to essential service workers on the front lines because, you know, talking about um, folks like all of us that have the luxury of working from home, it right. is a luxury that, you know, we don't take lightly. Um, but I will say as a re- as a result of the tenant side of your question, you know, these last 45 days have been kind of a violent thrust into a forced work from home uh, existence in the midst of an enormous public health crisis. And so when we talk about work from home and remote working strategies, there is a lot of best practices that go into doing that, that we, along with our workplace strategy team, have implemented for, you know, a bunch of different companies. But but I would just say, keep in mind, you know, these are not best practices that the majority of companies have been able to implement. So, um, so much has gone into, you know, making sure first of all employees are safe, um, but giving them the infrastructure and the technology to be as productive as they can. Uh, I do think we are um, starting to see the focus transition from that to the reboarding process. And I know we'll, mm-hmm. you know, talk about that as the discussion um, goes on, but. You know, from a tenant perspective, you know, from March, I would say every week the discussions we're having about the role and purpose of the office space going forward is changing. And, you know, a lot of the short-term strategies that I think will be carried on to, you know, regular best practices around hygiene, um, working in uh, shifts, um, and just all of the different protocols that will go into physical distancing within the workplace. I know we'll get into in a lot more detail here. Um, are, you know, a lot of the conversations we're having day in and day out from kind of the tenant perspective, looking back, you know, 45 days ago or so.
0: Liz, how have you experienced this transition?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's, it's very much the same. I mean, I would say the same exact thing as Mike said, which, you know, first of all, you know, a big thank you to all of the essential workers that are still out there. And, you know, secondly, that our clients are really taking a more, collaborative mindset than they probably have in other other mindsets and other other eras and that really is rooted in the fact that they do need to come up with a new set of rules to sort of play by in this environment given we haven't had something like this happen before um and i think that it's great to see landlords and tenants communicating around that and trying to figure out a way forward together
0: yeah and and what kind of discussions are now evolving obviously um you know i you know you know, some landlords were a little more lenient in April, but at some point, you know, that that might, um, you know, end. some tenants might be less so lenient in terms of what they want to do. Uh, you know, anecdotally, what are you seeing throughout the industry um, across the Bay Area? Uh, what What is happening in terms of the landlord tenant relationship in terms of trying to, you know, push push rent uh, one way or another?
2: Yeah, Liz and I have, along with all of our other colleagues of Newmark are constantly having, you know, these, these discussions Vlad about, you know, what our landlord clients are going through right now. And so, you know, first and foremost, they've been really focused operationally. So their leases, you know, require them to keep buildings open and operating. And so to do that in the midst of a public health crisis with the employees and vendors that they have is is no easy task. So, you know, operationally keeping buildings open is something they've had a lot of attention. You know, some of these uh, landlords have huge construction projects that are ongoing. And, you know, some of the local and state directives early on in this were a little gray as to, you know, how essential services were defined and what projects could go forward. Um, Obviously, they're putting a lot of thought into cleaning and new hygiene policies that is evolving week by week. And, know, there's a lot of tenant education that's gone into um, their last 30, 45 days around, you know, things like HVAC air filtration and what do HVAC systems do versus they don't. Um, You know, on the rent collection side, uh, you know, the focus is certainly transitioning from April to May. You know, all of these landlords uh, have, you know, lenders and loan covenants and they've got a portfolio of, you know, tenants in a lot of cases. So having, you know, a defined message, a consistent message is important. But, you know, to kind of cut to the chase, we've seen that well over half of the rent rel- relief requests that tenants have made have been more opportunistic, Vlad, than they have been genuine. And these are not, you know, retail tenants, these are, you know, subject to this call, more office and R&D tenants. So while there is, you know, for many companies, a reasonable case for some kind of rent relief and rent restructuring, I think we've seen, And heard from our clients that well over half of the requests have been a little unfounded and opportunistic.
1: And then just adding in on that, Mike, I mean, I'm curious if you've seen something different, but our landlords that we're talking to are reporting that they received, you know, well in excess of 90, sometimes even 95% of the rent on the office tenants that they were expecting for April. And I think that's a lot higher than some people sort of expected going in to, you know, March 15th of this year. So I think there's a very watchful eye on May revenue and seeing if rents will be paid. But um, now that we have, you know, PPP, CARES Act, other, other elements of government support that companies are applying for, um, I think a lot of landlords are looking to that as a way for tenants that are in distress to find a solution.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point to highlight, Liz, because as you and I have talked to our colleagues and different markets, major markets around the country, I think we are fortunate to have seen a much higher April rent collection on a percentage basis than, you know, many of our other colleagues in other markets. So totally agree with that point. Yeah.
0: On the um, on the tenant side, um, you know, it's still playing itself out in terms of, you know, the layoffs and that kind of thing. And I swear to God, I'm not just going to focus on the negative here. I, I just want to <laughs> highlight a, a, a few of these um uh, you know, topical items, and then we'll we'll move over to some you know how this changes the industry for the better. But but what are some tenants thinking in terms of um, maybe subleasing space? I know that's that that might be on some of their minds. Are you beginning to see some thinking around you know putting some of that space back on the market? And uh, if any predictions that you might have, how how much of that might be out there?
1: Sure, I can start off with that one. Um, so first, kind of addressing some of the the tech layoffs that have been happening. Um, you know, we're seeing a concentration of it occurring in in industries that you sort of would expect that are harder hit um, given the crisis. So that would be people who are affected by events, uh, in person events, um, obviously online advertising, real estate, and co working. So there's a pretty concentrated group, and then we're seeing other industries that seemingly are sort of benefiting in the early stage, you know, fintech being one, e-commerce, and some of the others that Mike was discussing, gaming. So there's really a a little bit of a mixed bag here of who's making immediate turns to sublease space versus grow into other space. But in general, in San Francisco, you know, because we had such a low direct vacancy, which is really tied to the fact that we are not building much new real estate in 2020 through 2022 in San Francisco, only one new building being built... Office building, um, you know, we had a very low vacancy, and because of that, people were companies were turning to sublease spaces as an alternative. So our sublease space is up seventy-seven percent at the end of Q1 over the four-quarter average um, in 2019, and it's actually up thirty-six percent just this quarter alone. So it it sounds like a very large number, and it, it certainly is. But overall, our availability is still very steady with that said, um, and our demand is still pretty steady given Mm -hmm. everything that's going on, only down about 10 or 15% since March 1st. So I think we're going to need a little bit more time to see how this plays out. But if anything, it could, interestingly enough, allow companies a greater opportunity to actually find spaces that meet their needs. Because we had such a tight market in San Francisco in 2019 that only about 30% of the tenants in the market actually transacted. And a lot of them were just sitting there kind of waiting for a space to come up. And so now with more subleases hitting the market, which obviously offer um, a lower capital exposure in your first year, with tenant improvement buildouts, you know we could see an uptick in velocity um, as those companies start to make moves again in the latter half of this year.
0: Yeah, Liz, are you are you then projecting then uh, because of that um, uh, some of the operators that offer shared space might uh, be in a in a worse situation because they the uh, you know uh, tenants will have more opportunities.
1: Um, I I think that people go to subleases and shared spaces for different reasons. And so the immediate thing that is the same is that they are plug and play and relatively, you know, short term in nature. But there's also other services that are associated with co-working as as, as well as how it sits on your balance sheet as an obligation, you know, terminations, that are typically more flexible than a sublease would have. So there's other business reasons that that one or the other may be preferable. But I do think you'll see a big portion of the tenant in the market list, particularly in early and mid-stage tech, focusing on on sublease space this year and areas where they have a lower capital exposure. Now, some of our larger tenants that are, you know, much larger in scale, looking for headquarters in San Francisco. um, Typically, these companies are a little bit uh, longer, you know, longevities. They have um, workplace strategy and specific ways they want their buildings to be built out. And I think, you know, those sort of users will still look at new construction and still continue to look at big blocks of space where they'll do, you know, big improvement allowances to make it customized for themselves. But earlier stage companies may make some sacrifices in customization in order to save money this year.
0: Sure, sure, Mike. How about Silicon Valley?
2: Yeah, no, thanks, Vlad. Um, so I would just echo Liz's points you made just a second ago that this story is uh, being written as we speak, and it does feel like it changes by the day. But just to address the topic of sublease space, since March 1st, we've seen 32 new subleases uh, added to the overall inventory, which is about a 35% increase of where it was at the end of February. Um, that's you know really only a total of about 485,000 feet, and the average size availability of all 32 of those subleases is just 15,000 feet. So while I think um, things are a little more pronounced in terms of sublease space that's been brought to market in San Francisco than the Valley, I really you know would have to highlight kind of what Liz was hinting at is that you know larger users um, first of all have not put any space of any kind on the market for sublease. So it's important to identify that you know the largest household you know, anchors of the valley have not shed space. And, you know, the the size of these availabilities is a little bit more impactful on small to medium-sized transactions than they are um, larger ones. Um, I I should also point out that, you know, a couple of the subleases just in the last week that have come out from ASML and Knowles, these are companies that, you know, did a campus deal uh, in the case of ASML last year with Divco and are just putting the building on the market that they're moving out of in preparation for their relocation. Uh, Noel's a little bit of a different story, but, you know, did a deal in Santa Clara and now, you know, shedding the space that they have in Mountain View. So important to extrapolate when we see these sublease numbers and these headlines come out, what's actually going on there and kind nice. of what it what's amounts to. It. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's a great point, Mike, because, you know, in San Francisco, actually that element is very much the same where our subleases over a hundred thousand square feet can largely be attributed Uber moving into their Mission Bay campus, which is sort of you know the the end result of what they did five years ago, right? And a long term campus move, um, and then Dropbox in Mission Bay as well, um, you know, growing into their campus. So a lot of these subleases are because the company fundamentally was doing well and decided to grow. And there's space that needs to be dealt with as as those transitions occur.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So I I do want to now turn it, uh, you know, pivot, if you will, and turn it a little bit towards some of the positive things that, um, you know, there might be glimmers of, 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 of hope. Um, this is um, a time, you know, usually when there's a sort of flight to quality as well. Um, what does a quality product look like that you guys think um, will be uh, sustainable, will be one that will be um, in, in high demand going forward?
2: Yeah, so um, I think in the short term, uh, R&D facilities are going to weather the storm of these next you know, choppy, hopefully 612, not too many more months than that than office properties. Um, these are obviously buildings that are uh, better equipped to accommodate the needs and functions of life science, biotech, medical device and manufacturing companies. So if we're seeing any, uh, no pun intended, immunity to uh, a slowdown in demand, then we'd be happy to kind of quantify some of those demand metrics that we've been tracking over the last 45 days. Um, We're seeing it, you know, concentrated, you know, on the peninsula, um, both north and south, and among some of the lab space we have in Silicon Valley, you know, these companies. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, Huge household names that are based here in the Bay Area are actually providing, you know, a cure and a solution. And, um, testing and all different um, strategies for, for getting us through this tough period. So, um, you know, absolutely, you know, RD buildings, specifically those that can accommodate the labs and infrastructure that those types of companies need, um, will be more durable. Um, I think uh, new construction projects, while maybe not at this second in time, you know, something that the court of public opinion is going to be too kind to with, you know, layoffs and a public health crisis going on and companies, you know, taking down brand new construction buildings. I do think the infrastructure and the environment that new construction buildings provide um, from air filtration to touchless um, experiences, be it security or access to lobbies that are rethought in terms of uh, not being a place uh, to gather, but a place to, you know, pass through and all the different things that, can get rethought and redesigned when you're leasing, you know, new space. I think kind of over the medium to long-term will prove to be, you know, the types of facilities that, you know, companies that are so sensitive about recruiting and retention will, will choose to invest in here locally. So kind of a short-term answer to your question, where I think some of the bright spots are. And then I think a kind of medium to longer-term answer your question, Vlad, of where I think that flight to quality will, amount to and what will probably be some pretty significant pent up demand when we kind of get through this rough period. Right.
0: Liz, is it any different in San Francisco?
1: No, very much the same, actually. I mean, I do think a very bright spot in San Francisco leasing is the PDR market, which is our equivalent of R&D. You know, those tenants were the last ones that were touring the market as shelter in place and stay-at-home orders sort of started coming in. Um, many of them have continued to work as essential work throughout this period of time. And I think you know there's been articles written around this, a great one by Andreessen Horowitz, I think that came out this morning or maybe yesterday, and just talking about how it's, it's really the time to build in America and in the Bay Area again. And I think that you'll see PDR and R&D do very well as a result of that. And then as it relates to, you know, to, to office product, um, I do think that, you know, over a very short period of time, there's going to be some strategies that we implement, including, you know, moving desks around to make them more socially distant from each other, including changes to communal spaces like kitchens or even lobby protocols in terms of how we sign in. But I do think that the buildings that are being constructed right now that are able to also implement into their to their actual building systems new air filtration or take some of the feedback that we've received from things that need to change because of this crisis and put it into the building as it's being constructed. Uh, will have an advantage over some other buildings that were potentially retrofitted a long time ago, and it, it's very expensive and costly to change building systems, so that may not happen overnight.
0: Yeah, and, and that's a good segue into my my next question, which is about, um, you know, requirements uh, for, the, for the office space, and, um, you know, it's way too early, obviously, to say this is how it's going to be, but what are you seeing out there maybe in some specific anecdotes in terms of what what um you know tenants are looking for um, and and how they're looking to even transform uh, the space that are they're already in
2: yes yeah, we've um spent a lot of time over the last 45 days discussing this with our clients and both our workplace strategy team for me i kind of break it up into two different parts of the reboarding process that there's some kind of tangible things to talk about to answer your question one's around physical distancing and the, you know, seconds around hygiene protocols, Um, you know, on the physical distancing, you know, just start at your arrival to the building, you know, elevator occupancies, it's um, a little bit of a different um, experience if you're in San Francisco, you know, accessing a high rise building versus, you know, a low rise building in the Valley. And so what that looks like in terms of from a health and from a level of comfort standpoint, how many people will go in an elevator um, is interesting. I think we're all, going to be getting more steps every day using, you know, stairwells on a lot more regular basis. Yeah. Um, so that's one kind of new normal, um, you know, the reconfiguration of the lobbies, um, you know, Liz talked about, you know, implementation of uh, microbial, you know, antimicrobial furniture and things like mm-hmm. that, you know, blocking and tackling that we'll see, you know, the de-densification of the workspace is, is something without question um, is going to play out very quickly here. Um, I think some companies have the luxury of resources to really do that aggressively. Others um, are going to look at more practical strategies. I think we're really sensitive to you know having um, not a one-size-fits-all solution in counseling our clients. But you know, there's different levels of um, you know dedensification that are going to be right for each and every company. Um, you know, and one of the ways if you you know can't throw out your existing build-out and your furniture tomorrow is implementing things like, uh, you know, one way circulation and, mm-hmm. you know, wayfinding signage. It allows, you know, companies to, you know, just navigate their existing space in a different way. Um, I think we'll definitely see, you know, occupancies and conference rooms go down just as a you know matter of kind of day one reboarding, taking out half the number of chairs that were in a conference room, you know, before. Um, so, you know, physical distancing can be done and I would say, um, pretty elaborate and expensive ways, but could also, you know, be implemented in really practical ways. Um, anything, Liz, that comes to mind as we're talking about distancing?
1: Yeah, no, I think that that's great. I mean, I think there's a lot of behavioral shifts that every single one of us are going to have to adopt. And there's also going to be implementations to the physical environment that will occur over a short and, a, and the long run. Um, I think some of the things that I find really interesting about what we could do going forward is you know things like, as an example, if you guys have heard about these UV lights that potentially can, can help kill viruses, how could we implement that into like a nighttime cleaning shift or something so that people could use the surfaces um, more regularly? Or how could we change um, different scanners to include temperature if people do feel like that's appropriate with privacy concerns? And how does that data collect and distribute back to the landlord or the, the company itself? And how is that all managed? And there's a lot of more questions than answers right now, but I think it's opening up an opportunity for us to really imagine what the office of the future will look like and how we all want it to look. And as Mike said earlier in our conversation, you know this has been a grand experiment in, in working from home, um, but what do we want the office experience to be on the other side of this to, to build a better environment? for um employees and, and people as citizens of the places that we live.
0: Yeah, and how how much do you think that work at home um will will sort of, you know, maintain itself as a as a as a prevalent form of interacting. Uh, obviously, I know it's too early and it's uh this is um uh, like you guys said, you know, writing itself out as we speak. Um, but have you seen any indication from anybody in terms of whether this works for them, doesn't work for them, or it works for now? But you know, wh- yeah. wh- where's that spectrum of uh, of those needs?
1: So I would say the spectrum is across all of it, right? So some people have really enjoyed working from home and will be making moves to do long-term implementation or potentially to move certain functions to be more remote. Because if it doesn't need to be in San Francisco, as an example, where else could you find that talent um, more available to you to to hire quickly? So I think there will be long-term shifts. But that said, I think Overall, um, the sentiment I continue to hear from people most regularly is that they do look forward to being back in the office, and they do feel like face-to-face communication does you know, push certain dialogue faster and reach conclusion faster, and the ability to collaborate with each other in real time, while tools like Slack have been really helpful during this period of time. There's nothing like you know, sitting in a room and kind of brainstorming on a whiteboard, so um, a little bit of a mixed bag for sure.
2: Yeah, and I'll just add on to that. You know, the current U.S. workforce is a five percent remote workforce today. Uh, crystal Ball is not good enough to tell you if that goes to seven or ten percent in the next couple of years ahead. But in talking to one of uh, the largest financial institutions in the world last week, a call Liz and I were on, um, without naming names, but they're the type of folks when they speak, at least uh, I listen, uh, they said the loss in productivity that they've experienced uh, in terms of work from home, not just of these last 45 days, but just as a general um, strategy for working over the last, you know, call it number of years, um, is far outweighed by extra real estate costs of setting up satellite offices in, in suburban locations. So while I completely agree with everything Liz said in terms of some functions, some companies, some percentage of their workforce, having an awakening that this is an actual fabulous way to work for certain functions. I, I think the overall majority of our clients, uh, can't wait to get back to the office. It will be a different office and, you know, the extra costs of real estate that potentially having less dense space will cause, um, I think will be offset by some work from home. Yeah. Um, no, that strategy, but but much picked up for in kind of productivity gains. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and then um, you know before we close, I want to kind of ask a couple of final questions around: w- What are you guys seeing? Are there some companies that are doing some things that are really extraordinary? And you know, even if it's anecdotal, um, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of what what you guys are seeing out there that kind of gives you hope that you know this will be the way of of the future, but in a but in a positive way, right?
2: I um I could take a slight twist on your question there, Vlad, and just talk about, you know, a little bit of a plug. Something Newmark did that I think was really cool. Sure. And, um so Newmark is a company Liz and I are extremely proud of what they've done over the last forty-five days. We've set up an entire website, um ngkf.com forward slash covid-19 that provides a lot of great thought leadership and practical implementation strategies for the reboarding process and different things going on. But um, we actually took a proprietary data analytics tool that we use for portfolio management and provided it free to any of our clients or prospects that wanted it, where they could effectively put in all of the locations across the world, all of their people across the world, and then a visual... Um, data-rich way, analyze where those hotspots are. So yep. I think Newmark as a company um, hopefully has given a lot of people a lot of tools to navigate this. And so we're, we're proud of, um, again, uh, a lot of the things Newmark's done to, to help and be helpful in navigating this. Um,
0: yeah. And, and you, and you beat me to the punch, Mike, cause I was going to ask what you guys specifically are also doing, but, but, but that's okay. Um um and I what what I would love to just hear if if there's anything out there in terms of you know really sort of um you know rays of sunshine that you're kind of seeing that that is indicating that um you know where 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 are the possibilities I mean usually recessions like these are a time of you know reinvention and kind of re re recreation of companies and, and ideas and things like that and and I'm just sort of curious what you're seeing out there. In the commercial real estate space that that you feel um, might be transformational in the next cycle
1: yeah well i think you know one thing that's very interesting about what's happening right now given that many of us are in our homes uh, um, more than we're expecting is that we have a little bit more time for creative thinking than we may usually in our in our everyday lives and it's really encouraging to me that when i'm talking to uh, friends and clients that they are taking this time to be creative, to think about solutions, to think about maybe new companies they could start, new service lines they could offer, and having that that time and space. And I think we've seen some great companies implement practices around preserving that creative thinking time within the workplace. And I'm hopeful just seeing everything that's happening with how people are coming up with solutions so quickly because they have a little bit of extra um, time period to think that we could, we could implement that. So I felt very encouraged by just our culture of innovation in the Bay Area and, you know, solution-oriented mentality as well.
2: Yeah, and just on the rays of hope on the horizon, um, I think it's important to remember that the Silicon Valley unemployment levels was 10.5% at the peak of the financial crisis. You know, while it's just over 3% today, and we expect that number to rise, we are a a far cry from an unemployment perspective locally, totally understood and acknowledge uh, what pain's being felt on a national basis. So, you know, I, as mentioned earlier, the uh, the household name companies and all these great different verticals that call Silicon Valley home, uh, you know, the cash on hand that they're using to navigate this. Um, I would say for, you know, those companies that are kind of in a better spot right now, this is, one of the greatest hiring opportunities that they've seen over the last decade. And the talent that, you know, is again, being laid off in one part of the market is highly sought after in other parts of the market. So uh, from a recruiting and retention standpoint, um, I think many of our clients are uh, tickled with the opportunity that's out there and the quality of the talent that's available, you know, caused by the turbulence over the last 45 days.
0: Great, um, Liz and Mike. Thank you both for your time and insights. Um, I appreciate you—you uh, giving us all this uh, great information. Thanks Anytime. for having us. Bob.
1: Thank you for having us, and stay healthy.
0: You too. Thank you.